different things. So we were talking about the Word of God last week. Actually, then, um, there's probably a little bit of, what do you want to say? I guess a little bit of redundancy, um, since <laughs> that was, you know, we heard about the relationship of God's Word to faith today in church, right? Yeah, so I don't know if that's redundant, but <laughs> you could probably never hear too much of that. Uh, but last week, what we discussed, and you can look at this in, the, in your chapter, is uh, specifically, where, do, where does God's word come from? And he did that by walking, the author, by walking us through uh, this collect, which is a, is a prayer. We say collect because English is weird that way, right? Sometimes you pronounce words differently, depending on context. Um, a good example of this is, uh, you know, Andrew Carnegie. Right, the, the, he was a rail mogul, right? I think it was railroads, probably coal as well, right? Because those would go together. Um, then he, his legacy was is the is the are the libraries, right? And, and those are they're very iconic. They have you know certain concrete or stone standards and everything. All right, so and those are called Carnegie libraries, right? Yeah. But then he also has a foundation, and it's called the Carnegie Foundation. So why would you, I don't know, in one context you say his name differently. If it's the foundation, you say it one way. If it's his name, it's the same guy. Anyway, so we say um, collect when we talk about this prayer. And each week has a collect, right? That collect, it actually collects, it's the same word, collects the main themes of the day. And then tries to, tries to distill them down into like something that you can just kind of grasp onto. Sometimes it gets it right. Sometimes I think the theme is a little bit... It's like, where did you get that? I'm not really sure. They're old. I mean, most of them are written um, 6th or 7th century. They're going to be from Gregory, primarily, uh, who's a pope in Rome. So um, so they're old. But anyway, this one is called the Collect for the Word. And it's been in all of our uh, hymnals. English ones, anyway. I think German, too. Blessed Lord, this is on page 1. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may hear or we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and hold fast the ever the blessed hope of everlasting life. So what, what a collect does is it, it first says, uh, it'll have like a purpose statement or a promise statement from God. And then, then it makes a petition. You ask for something. Um, and then you, then you say what the benefit is going to be. Right? So here, God, you caused scriptures to be written, inspired, breathed into is what that means. Um, you, you caused scriptures to be inspired for our learning. Um, and by learning, we don't mean education in the school of education. So not exactly what, what you're training to do, but um, um, to, like we heard today, um, t- to give us knowledge of salvation, that we would see Jesus for who he is. Right? And uh, so then grant or give to us that we would hear them, read them, mark them. That would mean like, mm, how do you mark something? Well, we mark things up, right? Yeah, like highlighting and notes and all that kind of stuff. But but to to really intensely study them and learn them, that would be to actually um, read or hear them in such a way that you remember them, <laughs> right? Um, so, I mean, this is not going to surprise you, but the, the scriptures that I end up quoting the most are the ones that I've um, used in church for the last eight years. Why? Because 
I mean, every congregation I've served, they've had at least two services on those texts, and we had the same text every year. So for eight years, I've been praying those with God's people at least twice a year or twice a weekend and for every year. And there's a way, and this, this is the reason why I suggested we do it here, is then it gets not only for you, it doesn't just happen to me, but it happens to you. You start to become familiar with God's word to the point where you actually recall stories and you require the, you re, maybe even recall the point of the story, maybe because of the preaching of it, the way the preaching went. And, uh, you know, I think some people approach God's word as, in a sense, like, well, I have to know the whole thing. Well, I mean, it's good to have a, at least a passing familiarity with, with all the prophets and, you know, all the stories. Um, but you're not going to retain them all in your memory um, unless it's like basically your life's work, right? Uh, what's, uh, I don't know if they use this in, in education, but I can't remember the guy's name. I just lost it. Um, who who, who uh, created what, what's called the 10,000 hour rule. Have you heard this? All right. Um, I learned it through Tim Ferriss, who has the four hour work week, which is a productivity book, but um, that's not the point. I can't remember who the creator of this was. Basically, he, he evaluated a lot of trades and vocations and, and, and found that pretty consistently, like if you're to gain mastery of a discipline or of a vocation required 10,000 hours of study, exercise, whatever it is, to actually be able to say, I'm now competent at that. And that's, of course, presuming that you have some skill or aptitude to actually learn it, Right. I mean, you could spend 10,000 hours on rowing and not have the build for it. Actually, that's a pretty good example. You probably end up with the build if you just row all the time, even if you're not any good at it. Just through the doing of it, you'll develop the muscles and the, and the physique to actually be able to do it reasonably well. So 10,000 hour rule. I think it actually applies to the church too and to God's word. We didn't talk about that last week, but um, this is why devotions or prayers you say, well, I don't seem, I'm, think I'm getting anywhere with this, or it doesn't seem to really be benefiting me. Well, yeah, but how, how much have you done? How long have you been doing it? You know, for me now, eight years into hearing the same readings every year, I think I'm only starting to probably kind of see, like, maybe the principal, you know, or the principal or central focus of those readings. Um, I had a conversation with a friend this week about... Uh, the appointment of those readings, which was done, some of, in some cases it was done by Galatius. We were just talking about this when you stepped out. Galatius, the Pope, uh, in six, I think he was Pope in like 640 AD. Um, and then Gregory, who followed him, Gregory I or Gregory the Great, that's what he's sometimes called. We, you know him from Gregorian chant. Right? So Gregory set um, the a lot of the readings that we have are, are fixed since Gregory, so 1,400, 1,500 years. Um, but also the Psalms for the day, the introits, the graduals, all those things. And uh, I was doing some research for a friend of mine because uh, I have books that he didn't have. And uh, why did Gregory do that? You know, I mean, why do the same thing every year? And uh, this author... He said, I don't know, I don't know where his, he didn't get, he didn't cite his sources, but he said that it was widely um, remarked at that time that preachers, they, they, their preachers couldn't preach from the scriptures. They couldn't even, they couldn't even like 
um, extemporize a prayer. Like somebody like asked them for a prayer. They couldn't actually create a prayer. They had so little knowledge of God's word and understanding. And Gregory actually said, um, he actually permitted, <laughs> permitted them to omit preaching as long as they followed the, the liturgy that he set, the lections that he appointed, because as we're going to talk about in a few minutes, hopefully, um, the purpose of the liturgy, the purpose of those fixed readings um, was to do what, what bad preaching, to make up for bad preaching, basically. So even if the preacher didn't preach or couldn't preach well, at least the lectionary, you know, those appointed readings, at least the liturgy, the way that they worshiped, would preach the gospel to them. And uh, I made the remark, I think it was on a podcast that will come out someday, something about, um, oh yeah, this was Luther. I mean, Luther remarked that that God preserved the gospel in the Roman church, even with um, the fact that they didn't even know God's word, many of those priests, the, the rural ones especially, um, and, uh, you know, and then the gospel had also been shrouded by all sorts of medieval piety, you know, like that making penance or, um, or the sale of indulgences or any of the things that, you know, are a big deal with the Reformation. All right. So why did I bring all that up? Readings, preaching, God's word. Oh, repetition, both in liturgy, but also in readings, um, then that, that does inculcate those, at least that group of readings for, for memory, that you actually learn them, right? So like, for example, if I said, well, Psalm 51, recite it for me. You'd probably say, well, I don't know. But if I said, create in me a... New heart. Yeah, new heart, a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. I'm like, I didn't memorize that, like sitting down and saying, I'm going to memorize Psalm 51. I sang it in church every, you know. Um, when do we sing that? Oh, yeah, Divine Service 3, setting 3. It comes before communion, it's the offertory. Just from singing it most weeks or every week, right? It, it's just now, it's there, I've learned it. So, um, so 10,000 hour rule. Coming all the way back around. Um, that's why, you know, I, I know it's easy to get discouraged with God's word, you know, and it doesn't seem to be really taking root. Um, but I think it, like a lot of things that we try to master or to be a, a, to be a, you know, to be a pupil or a learner and then to become, have mastery over it, it just takes a long, long time. And don't give up. Just be patient with it and let, let, let his word have his way with you, as Dr. Nagel says. All right, so that's a... That's actually a pretty helpful kind of summary of the collect. Uh, But you can read a lot of other things. I'm recapping, by the way. Um, You can read a lot of things about, like, what's the benefit of this, right? Is that we would have patience and comfort in the Holy Word so that we would hold fast or be steadfast, if you like. Um, Actually, I noticed this yesterday, and I mentioned it to the ladies in the morning. One of the icons in the stained glass windows, if you look at the top, there's little icons. In the back right-hand corner, so right in front of the balcony, is a cross, but it has an anchor around it, which you've seen before because, you know, you mentioned the podcast, you know, there's a group of people that taught the podcast, Christ Hold Fast. Yeah. But, but that picture, that's what that icon's meant to show. It's like, what does an anchor do for a boat? It, it, it keeps you from moving, even when there's storms and everything around you. And uh, so that, that language of holding fast as that language, maybe like a barnacle on a boat would work too. <laughs> That's not as pretty a picture. Maybe as an anchor with a cross. 
Yeah, so that's the goal, is that we'd hold fast to Jesus, really, uh, and to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which I mentioned in the sermon, funeral sermon yesterday, um, you know, that God kept his promise for Ralph and kept him in the faith until the day of the resurrection. Oh, I don't know how much more we need to say. So you can, I'll send you the link to last week and go back and look at that. But speaking again of like inculcating God's word, um, this is something, Michael, Michael appreciate this, on page five, the narrative commentary on the divine service. This is built around service one. I've done it around service three as well. Um, that uh, um, Reverend Pless, Professor Pless, I think he has an honorary doctorate now, but he doesn't go by doctor because it's honorary. You don't really go by doctor if you're just awarded a doctorate for your work or your contribution. Um, He uh, authored this, I think when he was serving as campus pastor in uh, at uh, University of Minnesota, or University Lutheran Chapel there. And... uh, so, you know, that context, uh, you appreciate this, Jessica, is for, you know, especially a, universe, a secular university like that, it's a, it's, it's a hotbed of false doctrine, basically, you know. And so to be able to defend the practice of the church, um, it's one of the things that really you have to equip people to do. Uh, I want to equip you to do it today, too. And there's benefit to it, but, um, but we do this with the young people. We talk about the liturgy all the time because... Um, you know, what you do in church actually matters. That was my sermon last week, wasn't it? Yeah. Because I got a lot of feedback from it. Good, positive, but also people talking about bad situations they've been in where the church just did whatever, or the chapel at the school. I don't, you know, I understand the chapel at your school. You know, there's all sorts of things that happen, right? And uh, sometimes that's confusing for people. Um, but where it does, where it really matters is what is being confessed, right? Or namely, who is being confessed, and and what what is he doing uh, to connect it to today's sermon? You know, who's the subject, and then what's the what's the action that the subject is doing? If God is the subject, are the verbs the verbs of salvation, of forgiveness, of life, of um, of keeping, or or to holding, or protecting, or you know, good news words? Um, or sometimes we hear like God is an awesome God. Well, that's now you're describing God in, in abstract adjectives. You know, he's mighty. He works wonders. You heard that from the psalm that I quoted in the sermon, um, which, which is all true. But it's, but it's kind of, it almost sounds like a distant abstract. I said abstract twice now. Distant, um, kind of ephemeral God. You know, it's hard to kind of nail down. He's just big and mighty and glorious and powerful. Okay, well, how's that different than Zeus or, um, I don't know, whatever God people believe in today, the almighty dollar, I don't know. Uh, but if, if it's God redeems his people, as pointed that out, that's a very specific word. Of, that's a salvation verb, right? And it's an action verb, too. It's active. He's living. He's active. He's doing um, what he's promised. So uh, how did I bring all that up? Hmm. Oh, Worship. Yeah, sometimes, um, you know, I grew up at a congregation. They, they love that Rich Mullins song, you know. I, actually, I like Rich Mullins a lot. I just don't know how appropriate it was to sing in church. Um, my, our God is an awesome God. He reigns in heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Okay, so I know the chorus. Actually, the verses were better than the chorus. Because the chorus just sounds like, okay, he's awesome, he's terrific, that's great. 
but how? You know, I mean, what has he done? How is he awesome? And then really, uh, if you want to use the, the why question, why is that? Why is he? Well, today we heard he's merciful, he's kind, he's generous. I talked about that in the sermon yesterday for the why, why present himself as a as the good shepherd, which was the, the text from John 10. Why, why do that? So that you would know that he is, he gathers his flock, he protects them, protects you, he um, keeps you safe, he goes after you when you're lost, he rescues you, he puts you on his shoulders, he comforts you, um, all the things that shepherds do. Right? Uh, that's a little bit better than just saying he's adjectivally awesome or terrific or amazing. So um, I think you do see that play out in worship sometimes that way, <laughs> where it's just like, let's get to the point already. That's how I kind of feel anyway. Um, so, it, I mean, you could do the same thing. I'm sorry, this might seem like a town tangent, but I think it works. Um, you could do the same thing with like our closing hymn today, these praise and adoration hymns that are at the back. You know, um, our praise and adoration hymns are a little bit unique. What was that one that we sang? Seven... 80, you have your bulletin? I don't remember what it was. Uh, oh, the closing hymn, the last hymn. Oh, it was eight, eight what? Oh, okay. I'm in the wrong section. Oh, it's praise and adoration. There it is. But it's sing praise to God, the highest good. The author of creation. Well, that's an action word. He authored creation, right? The God of love who understood our need for salvation. So he understands us, right? He understands our sin. The healing balm, our soul, he fills, again, active, right? With, and, and every faithless murmur stills or silences. See, active words. Then, to God all praise be glory. So you can, you can speak of God in an in a abstract way, right? With an adjective, like glory. But notice how the hymn writer does it. Attaches his glory to what he has done. So, just to prove the point, I guess, is what I'm getting at there. All right. So let's look... Um, at the divine service commentary. By divine service, this is worth noting. I'm erasing things. I'm like, oh, I want to retain that forever. But that's why I write it on the board, so I don't forget it. I'm not so concerned when anybody else does with it. It's a gem. Well, kind of, not really. Um, oh, divine service, kind of an unfortunate English translation. Because what does that make it sound like? What, what is something that's divine? I mean, yeah, cookies. That's what I'm looking at. You know, oh, cinnamon rolls, see? Those are divine. Right? That's how we usually use it, meaning it's like super special or something, or really terrific. Um, but of course, you know that's not what it means. It means technically something that is divine. It's a weird English word, isn't it? What do you say? Why would we attach it to the service in church? See, I think it, I do think it's a little like, why choose that word? Uh, divine means it's of God. That's what the word means, right? So if actually if you say, if you're saying the, the cinnamon roll is divine, you're just saying this is the kind of cinnamon roll you'd eat in heaven, right? Oh, we actually say that, right? It's heavenly. Is that what you're going to say? Yeah, yeah. Heavenly or divine. That's the problem. Is I, that's probably the problem is that people think that means heavenly. But this is actually for us as Lutherans. Um, you know, for the most part, Lutherans, at least their origin is Germanic. And then actually right away, the first generation, the first martyrs, uh, Lutheran martyrs were Scandinavian. First ones who died for the faith. It was like 1519. 
there were two monks that converted, uh, that were burned at the stake for converting to Lutheran, or actually just confessing Lutheran doctrine. There wasn't such thing as a Lutheran church at that point. They just said Luther's right, and then they were killed. Uh, actually, the translation here from German is Gottesdienst. And then there's actually, there's actually another word, Hauptgottesdienst. And I have the German hymnal, so I can actually show this to you. I don't believe these things exist. Gottesdienst. Now, Gott, you can see that word. That's pretty easy what that is, right? What do you guess it is? G-O-T-T. God. God. <laughs> Good. Uh, and God S, this is possessive. I'm just giving you some. You don't have to know German. Oh, I can't even spell this. Do you know German? I do. Yeah, you speak it fluently? Nope. I can read it, though. I can't spell possessive. There we go. Um, I actually passed German proficiency, advanced German proficiency for my second master's degree that I didn't finish. As well as advanced Greek, but uh, that was now eight years ago. So, um, yeah, if you don't use it, you lose it. That kind of stuff. Uh, reading, yeah, and with a lot of dictionary open and, and figuring things out. And, uh, and Google Translate too actually helps with basic grammar. Even if it doesn't get the translation right, it'll get the word. It'll get the grammatical use of the word right based off of suffixes like this. Anyway, gods and then deeds to service. All right, so that's where we get it. Goddess deeds, God's service, or different service. Okay? Uh -huh. And then uh, in German, they actually had the Hauptgottesdienst, which is, this is just the word for high. So when people say, oh, you're high church, well, yeah, actually, we, we distinguish between our services. We say we have some sort of Goddesdienst is the way that God serves us all the time. So the, this is actually usually attached to the prayer services and to all the services of the church. But the Hauptgottesdienst is what we now call the divine service, that is, a service with the Lord's Supper. One of the services oriented to give us the Lord's Supper, actually. So, you know, we were going through the vacancy period and mm -hmm. looking at, at call, the call list, which, you, of course, you were on. You guys categorize yourself by high church. Or there's a couple different... Actually, the district church. president categorizes okay. us, okay. and we don't get to see that. Okay, highly liturgical, liturgical, right. liturgical, flexible, whatever. I know, that category thing is like, I, oh my yeah, gosh. Yeah, and, and I know we have a bit of a, like, a definition but it, just, it didn't make any sense. So it so doesn't make any sense. The high church part? Okay, this, I'll tell you, he, he has a question. But it applies to this. Um, by high church, actually that, that is a definition that came, it's a pejorative term, meaning it's a, meant to like, it's negative, um, that came out of the Church of England. So during the 60s, 70s, the Church of Engl in the Church of England, there were those who said that um, that they needed to, uh, to actually have uh, opportunity to worship not using the Book of Common Prayer. All right, so this is Church of England. Uh, it's a little different than ours. But the Church of England has one prayer book, and it's been moderately revised um, since it was authored in 1540-something. It was a... Because they were a church that came out of the Reformation. Um, they took... Hmm, they would consider themselves Anglo-Catholic, so English Catholic. They took a lot of Catholic elements, but then they also brought in a lot of Reformed elements, and, and then they had the English church, so it's very unique. Anglican, English, English it's, it means the same thing. Um, and Episcopalians in the U.S. are a 
part of the Anglican community. Okay, um, it was pejorative from the hippies, basically, in the church that said, you, you are high church, you do everything so mighty and glorious, because that's, that's what actually the books actually said to do, uh, the way you dress, the whole deal, um, but you're not with the people, and you're not down to our level, and you're unapproachable. Yeah, so that's what that high means. It's like, like well, it's the same revision that happened to the sanctuary here in the, in the late 50s. Where they, the pulpit used to be about another five feet up, and it had a canopy over it. And people said, "Well, now I don't know if it happened here. It probably did because they lowered the pulpit and they got rid of the canopy, which um, you know you can, I could take it or leave it. That's not the point. But they they absolutely did it for theological reasons. And maybe it was even the pastor who said, "I don't want to be perceived as high and lofty and up on a pedestal. I want to be down with the people and preaching to the people." I'm still up above everybody else, and you know, yeah. <laughs> you know. But isn't the fact of that that I mean, you're up there preaching, but it's God's words. I mean, why not? That's what you're supposed to be hearing and meditating on. Is, well, and, and the stupidity right? of it all is they're high, so you can see and hear. Yeah. The canopy actually, exactly, yeah. it helps project the voice, and they're like. And to say that it's like, oh, now he's got a crown over his head. and he's, I mean, there are things that people have said. So that, that's where this high church came from. And then in Lutheran, Lutherans, you know, we like, we like to just, you know, adopt other people's language and then reuse it, reclaim it for our own use and kind of twist and distort the meaning. So for us, um, high church is connected to, um, unfortunately, to those who, well, and this, this would be every Fort Wayne Seminary graduate for the last 30 years, probably, or so, since about the mid-90s, have graduated only knowing how to, um, how to pr- perform their duties according to what's in the hymnal. But then that is, in our synod, has been described as being high church. Or highly like, liturgical. Right? Or highly liturgical. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what does highly liturgical mean? It means, it means they, they pref- I, the way I would describe it is, I prefer to do the same thing regularly rather than invent new things all the time. Which, so I would pejoratively say those who are low church are those who, if I were going to adopt that language, which I usually don't, are those who basically do whatever they want. Yeah, and it's not that you can't do that. But uh, I would ask, what's the, actual, what's the, like in regards to that collect of God's word, what's the actual long-term benefit of being so against repetition. I would ask, do you actually learn any of God's word then? That's how you inwardly digest, right? Right, right. Yeah, and and I think, I mean, I heard a Roman priest say it on the radio. um, You know, they equated going to Mass like brushing your teeth, which kind of degrades the Mass in a way. It's actually more important than that. But but in another sense, he's right. I mean, it, it is... I mean, I would say that when, like in Psalm 23, which we heard in the funeral yesterday, when he said, you know, or actually I'm thinking of the Lord's Prayer, when he says, give us this day our daily bread. Well, how does he regularly feed us spiritually? I mean, physically he does every day through bread from the ground, you know, seed that grows and all that. But spiritually, how does he do it? He does it through his word. And regularly, I mean, daily, that means all the time, right? Um, so I really do think it's become becoming upon the church or the school that God's word be our daily sustenance, right? Spiritually, you know, that that's how we're nourished. That's how, that's how we learn who we are. That's how we were called to repentance, all that. Um, so this high-low thing is really kind of, I think sometimes people are talking about chant. 
You mean with Jewish? Yeah. When I asked that question, it was explained to me that the highly liturgical or high church means one, the the minister follows the mm-hmm. uh, the uh, in the book, like the one right. that, the, the uses the hymnal. Right, and uses that, and then more chanting versus right. talking. Yeah, and I think that's probably true, um, and maybe helpful. And that certainly was caught up in the way that the Anglican Church, those who were, they were opposed to as much, they really just didn't want the church to sing as much as it did. And the Anglicans sing as much as the Roman Church does, and as much as Lutherans do. Uh, They have a wonderful um, tradition of singing the Psalms that actually I think is even more developed than what we see in the Roman Church. Now Lutherans sing in places that nobody else sing. This is really important to note. Because um, Luther actually instructed in his uh, revision of, of the, the Mass in German um, that we sing the gospel and we sing the words of institution. Now, that tradition is lost on us here in most places. Missouri Synod, pretty much. Nobody does that. Sing the actual gospel. Yeah, and here's where it's really neat. Um, you've heard me sing the words of institution, yeah. which are the gospel, by the way, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, right? That's the gospel. And it's sung. We're the only ones who sing it. So when people say, well, we're opposed to chanting, they're like, you know that we're the only ones that elevate the words of institution by singing them. And by singing them, you also have the advantage of they're more deliberate than as well. You can't sing them fast. You've probably heard people speak those words. Oh, our Lord Jesus Christ, and now he was betrayed. Like it's casual or it's just, we just need to do this thing. And it's like, no, that's not, they're not magic words. I mean, they are powerful words. They are God's word. They do what they say. Um, but it's not like some kind of formula that you just have to say, you can't omit, that kind of thing. Um, so then, here's where, this is where it gets really neat. The words of institution, the way that I sing them, and the way that they're given to sing in the hymnal, actually with the tones, and they, that's the same tone that Luther instructs you to sing the gospel to. So that when you hear today's appointed gospel sung, and then you hear the words of, of our Lord's institution sung in the same way. And uh, this is very intentional by Luther to do what I was actually going to tell you about anyway. So thanks for getting us there eventually. Which is, when it comes to the divine service, which in German is the, the high divine service, to distinguish it from all the ways that God serves us in liturgy, uh, everything in that service, in, in the divine service or God's service, it's all oriented towards the receiving of the Lord's word and the Lord's body and blood, which are actually the Lord's body and blood are given to us by his word, <laughs> right? Because it's his word that says, this is my body, this is my blood. Everything is oriented towards that. Um, and that, you know, I haven't explained this to the elders, so I've just done it, but uh, there's a lot, a lot of things I've just done, but this is one, is if we don't have the Lord's Supper, we're not using the divine service. Um, and there's plenty of historic reason for that. Uh, that whole, like, did we talk about this already? No, Okay. But, well, I didn't know if, if Jessica had heard this. So you can, you're going through the service, and then there's this like detour moment. They say, well, if, if the service of the sacrament is not celebrated, then go to point, go to, just say this prayer and say the Lord's Prayer, and then you're done, and a benediction, and then you're done. Um, but if the service of the sacrament, and you say, well, see, it's a divine service, but then they give you kind of this out that if you don't want to have the sacrament that day, you just say no. And... Um, Actually, the practice, the reason that that was offered in both the German hymnal, Walther's hymnal, I've, I did the research since we've talked about this last, and in other hymnals, that detour to say no sacrament was if no one had presented themselves 
see we did talk about it. Okay. So, um, which I was just thinking about that again this morning. It's like, um, you know, with this why question that's in my newsletter article again, I kind of develop it further, is to say, well, why did we abandon confessing before we would receive the sacrament? Well, we didn't exactly, because we brought a corporate confession. We all confess our sins together at the beginning of the divine service. We won't next week, actually, because baptism takes the place of it, which is another whole thing. I had an argument with pastors this week about whether or not to omit it or not. And I'm like, look, if I have a baptism, I have handbells, I have the children singing, uh, even if I preach like a half half the length of my normal sermon, uh, it's still going to be an hour and 20 minutes. There's, <laughs> you know, so uh, I think we can skip from baptism. I mean, we hear about forget. We hear our sins are forgiven in baptism in the baptismal rite. Let me ask you this: so the, the change from going to the um, confession before, mm, yeah, to a congregational one. Was that a synod or a, a um, or was it just church by church mm-hmm. adopted that? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's what I was wondering. And there are enough old timers around. Like you could ask, like um, you know, Wally and Ruth, or yeah. that remember doing this. Oh, yeah. And they'll talk about it being torturous, really. Um, Having to go the day before. Yeah. I mean, not because they have to make a trip in, you know, to Sherman Center and, you know, get the horse hooked up to the buggy and the whole deal and go confess. Um, But because um, I think what what had happened is that they didn't see confession as being about the absolution. So they saw confession as being... Like we talked, like I mentioned in the sermon, kind of off off the cuff, um, you know, like as another hoop to jump through in order to be prepared to receive the sacrament. Well, that's actually true. Confess your sins and then go to the sacrament to be forgiven. Absolutely. But in confession, um, Lutherans from the very beginning said, no, we're not going to mandate penance. You can make amends for your sins. I actually encourage you to do that. And I do. But that's not forgiveness. We actually, it's all about the absolution. I actually call it individual absolution rather than individual confession, or private confession. I'll call it private absolution. It's like when you need to hear your sins are forgiven, and you need to actually say, here's the sin, because um, I need to get it off my conscience. I need to hear that God's word applied to that. Um, so emphasis on absolution. I think that's probably part of what happened, um, because it was connected to the sacrament. In the same way, that's what's happened with confirmation. What you're going through now is that I, I really don't want you to see what we're doing now as being... Um, like a hoop you have to jump through in order to commune at the altar here or to be considered a member here or something like that. It's really just about learning who you are and what God has done for you um, so that, one, yes, you do recognize the sacrament for what it is, it's, but that's only part of it, really. It's about just learning um, what God has provided for you in your baptism, for example. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, um, yeah, getting people to make another trip, it's hard enough to get them to like stay for even a voters meeting, which seems like like, why would anybody want to go to that? We still get people to stay for that. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know. I, it's, it's been a struggle for me to, you know, apart from just encouraging people, like trying to inter- reintroduce a, a practice um, is pretty hard. But once you do, it sticks around for a while because nobody wants to change again after they've changed once. Um, but the thing is, is I, I really do think it's wise to not attach some kind of human observance or obligation or a sense of obligation towards the sacrament. I mean, Luther was very careful about that with the small catechism and saying, who's worthy and well-prepared? He was faith in these words. 
you know, and he even talks about like fasting, bodily preparation. These are great ways to prepare to receive the Lord's Supper. No problem. You know, you can fast for Lent in order to prepare to receive the Supper, prepare for Easter, or Holy Week and Easter. Um, that's great. Or other kinds of bodily preparation. I don't know what he has in mind there. Um, working out. Who knows? Um, ways of disciplining. I, I, maybe he's thinking of times of, of prayer or uh, meditation or, sci- or taking like a, doing a, like a silence retreat or something like that. Um, those are all fine too, actually. That can be very edifying to get lost, get stuck in your own head and then realize I don't want to be in my head. <laughs> you know, I need to be in God's word, which rejects a lot of the things that kind of sit in my conscience. Um, yeah, so that's the problem. And it's, and again, it's divine service. This is really the emphasis. It's actually about God's service to us, not our service to him. We respond to what he's done with us, or done for us, um, with prayer and with praise and with thanksgiving, right? And, you know, if you've received a gift, um, unlike how my parents had to make me write thank you notes to my grandmother because they were fearful of her wrath, Mom's listening, so she'll get that. You know, like, you didn't write my thank you note. You know, uh, Grandma, when she rest in peace, I'm sure she is resting in peace. Because she was so hung up on things. Um, she would, like, walk around the house trying to look for the thing she gave you and make sure it was still there. Like, seriously. Like, it's just like giving money to a family. Don't ever expect anything in return because you're never going to get it back. Right? But, but, but with God, it's a little different. I mean, we, you, you can't help, eventually, maybe not right away, maybe, maybe not every time, but respond um, with thanksgiving for what he's done, with praise, you know, glory to God in the highest or something like that. And even with prayer, saying, you know, based upon what you've given to me here, I'm going to ask, continue to ask for everything I need. Because you've promised to hear me. And you've shown me that you, that you do truly love me so I can pray. And that's, you know, like Jesus teaching his disciples to pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father. Well, what's that all about? You know, Luther in the Catechism says that it's, um, you know, asking, as, as dear children ask their dear Father. Well, how, how do you know that he's your Father? Well, by your baptism, which he's given to you, right? How do you know he's going to take care of you? Well, he always takes care of you. You always, his word is here for you. You know, I mean, actually, that's one of the prayers that um, Luther prayed is that God would never depart from Germany, from his people. But he said that the spirit does that. He'll move on from a place when they, re- when they reject him. God's patience is long suffering, but it does have an end. And he will allow you to fall into great shame and vice, but not, not to kill and destroy you, but to call you back to repentance, right? Back to trust in him. So, all right, look at the commentary. Unless you have a question. No. Um, the commentary, and we're not going to read it all. I really want you to read it on your own. Um, it does a helpful thing that we also have in the scripture, in the hymnal itself, which I think we talked about, how there's scripture references next to everything. Um, but um, he gives you a little introduction. So this is almost qu- quoting his professor, <laughs> um, who he was under, I think he was vicar under Dr. Nagel, who was the campus chaplain at Valparaiso back when they were still somewhat Lutheran. And um, then Dr. Nagel ended up teaching at the St. Louis Seminary um, after uh, Professor Pless ended up, well, before he was professor, ended up teaching up north. This is almost, this is a summary of what is in the introduction to Lutheran service book. 
which was also the introduction to Lutheran worship, the blue hymnal. They kept it because the introduction was the best part of that hymnal. There were a lot of things in that blue hymnal that were atrocious, but the introduction was fantastic, <laughs> which is kind of weird. You know? If the introduction is better than the book itself, no. anyway. Um, here, what is that? V-I-I, so that's eight. So whatever that means. Uh, how does he say here? The liturgy is God's work he gives, we receive. You see that? Yeah, so here's how Dr. Nagel said it. And Dr. Nagel's still living, by the way. Uh, he had a stroke. I had his last class, then he had a stroke. He had already been re- retired, uh, and he's been in a nursing home ever since. Our Lord is the Lord who serves. Jesus came into the flesh not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You hear this word service, right? On the cross, he offered himself, that's another service word, as a spotless sacrifice for the sin of the whole world. Through his perfect life and death, he accomplished forgiveness of salvation. This is not, I said, this, I said it wrong. This is not Dr. Nagel's introduction. Well, anyway, it's, it's good. Uh, on the cross, he offered himself as the spotless sacrifice for the sin of the whole world. Through his perfect life and death, he accomplished forgiveness and salvation for all before the Father in heaven. By his empty tomb and ascension to heaven, he declared victory over sin and death to all the world. Lots of emphasis on all, right? Seated now at the right hand of the Father. He graciously serves, or serve again, his church with the gifts of salvation. On the last day, he will come again to gather his elect from every nation to celebrate the feast that will have no end. And of course, uh, Luther says that feast, he is, um, we said this with the altar guild this week, he is the, the host, he's the butler, and he's the meal. <laughs> so the feast of heaven, it's, it's his feast from start to finish. Um, you just get to go, which is wonderful, actually. What a gift. Uh, so then he says, our Lord serves us, serves us again today through his holy word and sacraments. This is like, why did you change it? Eh. Anyway, I don't have Dr. Nagel's in front of me. Is there a blue hymnal in here? Oh, genius. I said there's nothing else we're keeping. So <laughs> don't, don't tell James and Cynthia, the guy who donated this. Let's see if I can find it in here. Okay, this is the one that is being quoted here. Ah, I love this one. All right, here we go. It's very similar. Our Lord speaks and we listen. His word bestows what it says. Faith that is born from what is heard acknowledges the gifts received with eager thankfulness and praise. There. All right. Music is drawn into this thankfulness and praise, enlarging and elevating the adoration of our gracious giver, God. Saying back to him what he has said to us, we repeat what is most true and sure. Most true and sure is his name, which he put on us with the water of our baptism. We are his. This we acknowledge at the beginning of the divine service. Here we go. Invocation. You see it? Commentary two. All right. Where his name is, there is he. Before him, we acknowledge that we are sinners and we plead for forgiveness. That's commentary three. See it? Confession and absolution. His forgiveness is given to us and we, freed and forgiven, acclaim him as our great gracious God, as we apply to ourselves the words he has used to make himself known to us. The rhythm, oh, this is a great word, the rhythm of our worship, because it's a music word, right? The rhythm of our worship is from him to us, and then from us back to him. But he gives, we, he gives, we receive, and then we respond with thankfulness or praise, right? He gives his gifts, and together we receive and extol them. We build one another up as we speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. 
Our Lord gives us his body to eat and his blood to drink. And finally, his blessing moves us out into our calling, right? In fervent love toward one another, as Luther says, where his gifts have their fruition. How best to do this we may learn from his word and from the way his word has prompted his worship throughout the centuries. And I love this statement. This is the end I'm going to read for you. We are heirs of an astonishingly astonishingly rich tradition. Each generation receives from those who went before, and in making that tradition of the divine service its own, adds what best may serve it in its own day, a living heritage and something new. It's kind of like marriage, right? Something old, something new. Yeah, so we do that. I mean, we had a 10th century hymn today, incidentally. So that's what um, he's got here in the introduction, right? In the divine service, well, I'll go back. The high and holy worship of God is faith in Jesus Christ. Such faith is created and sustained by God's service to us. In the divine service, the Lord comes to us in his word and sacrament to bless and enliven us with his gifts. Again, this service is not something we do for God. Rather, it is his service to us to be received in faith. The liturgy is God's work. He gives, we receive. And then you'll see in the commentaries below how that kind of bears out. Uh, This is important to note because, um, you know, we could say this about a lot of things. You know, for example, if we're going to talk stewardship, does God need your money? No, not really, right? Because everything in heaven and on earth is already his. (laughs) He doesn't actually need it. Who does? Well, your family, your children, grandchildren, etc. So heritage, um, your neighbors, right? God doesn't need your money. And, and we have to think about that a little bit when we like, like support the church, right? It's like, are you putting money in the plate to make God happy with you? Well, no. I mean, he's already happy with you. How do you know that from Jesus? Why would you put money in the plate? Will it provide, you know, for God's word to be continued to be preached here? You know, that the pastor actually can afford to continue to be your pastor so that his family is provided for, the teachers, etc., all of them, all the staff. And then also that, again, that it's preserved. So things like an endowment makes sense so that you can say this, this, what's received here is a great heritage and we want it to be available to the generations that follow us, even if they're not our own children. Okay? Like yesterday, I mean, actually, the family endowed the congregation, but there's no grandchildren. So there'll be no immediate family you know, that her grandchildren are following from um, the deceased, but, but yet they, they will preserve at least some part of what, what we do here. The very specific thing that they were very interested in, <laughs> right? which is okay. That's fair too. All right. So first we call on God's name. Again, you heard why from Dr. Dr. Nagel here in the blue hymnal, but um, reminds you of your baptism first, and then also uh, where, where God's name is, there he is. Okay? Confession and absolution. Again, this is kind of an innovation for us. It wasn't part of um, the divine service, properly speaking. It was, it was done um, separately until pretty recently. Uh, maybe the last 200 years or so. Okay. Um, there's nothing... So all we did is we took what people used to do on Saturday night and had them come in and do it on Sunday morning right before the service and to do it um, corporately, you know, together so that we all say the words together. There is a particular shortcoming in that, which is one, I just have to presume that everybody who has been examined and absolved in this congregation, well, they're all absolved because I declare forgiveness to them, um, but they've all been properly examined and that they still hold to our confession of faith. 
I don't go through like and recheck and say, do you still believe what we believe? Like every uh, year or two or whatever. Uh, maybe we should. I don't know. Could you? I'm just curious. Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, right. I mean, if somebody came forward and they say, Pastor, you said this in a sermon, I really disagree with that. And I'm like, well, but that's ex- exactly what the Bible says and what our confessions say. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, I don't really agree with it then. And they say, well, that actually means that you no longer consider, I can't, I can't be your pastor if you can't agree, um, unless I'm wrong, of course, with God's word. But um, hopefully I have both God's word and then I also have our Lutheran confessions or the catechism, for example, a small one. Um, or the large one, or whatever it is, um, you know, that it's divisive. There's no way around that. It truly is. But you also ought not commune, and we talked about this with John last week, ought not commune at an altar where you don't actually believe what they believe. Um, because that is, I mean, the, the main thing in the sacrament, Luther is very careful to say in the, in the small catechism, is the forgiveness of sins. That's why we go to the sacrament, for forgiveness of sins. He says that's the main thing. If you look at the large catechism, he expands upon it too a little bit, though, and and in our confessions, in that we go when we go to the sacrament, we're we're demonstrating our unity with one another in faith and life and doctrine. We're showing that we agree with the public confession of this church. We're saying that this man is my pastor. He's he's been sent here by Jesus to serve me today. You know all that kind of stuff. And that that's all secondary. It's not the main thing, but it is there. And so if you no longer agree with what we teach, or what, uh, or you can't agree with what I'm teaching, and I and I, and I've been examined, maybe even take it to the elders and say, Pat, Pastor said this, I don't agree with it. And then the elders work through it again and say, that's what God's work says. You know, at some point it's going to be like, well, and it usually just happens on their own. They just say, I don't longer want to be a part of that congregation because they won't accept my, my error, basically. Does that make sense? Can I ask another question regarding related to that? Mm-hmm. So you, you commented on if somebody is, you know, in a sense, directly opposed mm-hmm. to teachings or don't what about somebody who is um, um, maybe just unaware? Maybe mm-hmm. just, they're, they're Out of ignorance. Up in it, but they're not really they're not really digesting it. They're not really you know yeah. understanding it. But but yeah. but they're accepting whatever said to them. They you know is, is there a, a danger a, a sin or risk in that as well? Yeah, I've seen this play out too. In um, we had this very strange Lutheran synod that had a congregation very close to me in Indiana. It was across the state line in Illinois. Um, I've received members from them that were, sometimes Missouri Synod is called strict, um, but relative to this church, the Missouri Synod is about as, about as free a gospel as you can get, okay? Because they were, I don't have to give you the whole situation. Um, I think there were only like 12 churches in their synod because nobody else met their standards, basically, <laughs> or would want to be a part of them because they were so strict. So, and part of that was... Um, uh, I was I was providing some care for a, a young woman who had conceived out of wedlock, and um, they would not accept her. They wouldn't even allow her to attend church until she confessed publicly before the whole congregation that she was a sinner. Okay, well, did she believe she was a sinner? Yes, that's why I was talking to her. Um, is that is that a helpful practice? And I think what it betrays is that for some people, they view faith as something that's quantifiable or measurable, more or less, you know? Um, but here, I mean, you heard what we heard today. Do you believe that Jesus died for you? Uh, and by that, your sins are forgiven? Yes. Okay, can you kind of halfway believe that? Not really. 
Can you agree with everything else Jesus says? Well, you might actually struggle with some of the other things he says, right? Like, I mean, he does say that God created the heavens and the earth and on the seventh day he rested from all that he made, right? So Jesus affirms that creation was seven days. And you say, well, I really struggle with that because of geological evidence or whatever it is. I'm like, okay, I understand that. Do you believe Jesus died for you to forgive your sins? Do you believe that when he says, take and eat, take and drink, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, those words apply for you, for you, right? Um, they say yes. And they say, well, let's let the Holy God, the Holy Spirit work out the rest of it. You know, so I think there's a place in a Christian community congregation for people who are saying, I'm not quite sure about everything. You know, I mean, because the frank reality is, is how many people have actually read from front to back the confessional standard that this congregation, to be a member of this congregation, that it requires you to say, I agree with that. At best, you've read the small catechism front to back. And even if you say you agree with it, if you, if you, if you fully understand every aspect, and my guess is no, but as long as you're accepting, that was my question. Right, but we don't, we don't, what's re- we have to be really careful about that. We don't accept it because the community accepts it or because other people have accepted it. We accept it because, or the why here is because it is God's word. It does confess God's word. It's not, it isn't. It confesses it. If it doesn't confess God's word, then we can't subscribe to it. Now, um, there are Lutherans, just to make this point, there are Lutherans who say the Lutheran confessions, which, did we talk about those? I feel like we did the first, first class. I had a big book. It was in my stack of all my books. I don't have one over here. That the, did I say? Oh, no, that's Luther. Um, they say that they agree that the Lutheran confessions teach God's word, but they, they, have, a, they have an out. They add an out. Um, they say, insofar as they agree with God's word. So they say there's some things in the Lutheran confessions that really don't agree, or we no longer believe agree with what God said, since it was codified in 1580, or 1576. Um, published in 1580. The uh, uh, Missouri Synod in particular says, we agree that it teaches God's word because, or it's because, not insofar as, because it teaches God's word. Uh, and that means at every point, with some, I mean, there's, there's things that, of course, that doesn't include, like when um, Philip Melanchthon says that, you know, like everybody knows that if you rub garlic on a magnet, it's no longer magnetic. You're like, what are you talking about? Yeah, so like scientific data or anecdotes like that, we don't subscribe to that. I mean, obviously, it's not God's word, one. And two, it's not even true. It's some weird medieval, like, you ever heard that before? You rub garlic on a magnet, it's not going to lose its magnetism. Anyway, so there's stuff like that. And sometimes people get hung up on that. Well, you say it agrees with God's word, but look at that. No, when it claims to teach God's word, it does. That's what we're saying. Yeah. Um, So... Yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing with holding people accountable. Um, we just aren't doing that in this confession and absolution at the beginning of service. Because I'm hearing everybody say the same words. You know, I'm not hearing, I'm not hearing folks say, you know, I really struggle with this or that. Um, that doesn't mean the forgiveness isn't for you, and it, it isn't true. It is. Uh, but it doesn't have necessarily the same kind of comfort or benefit as private confession might have an absolution. So. Um, but, it, but I do think it's an appropriate thing for us to have now introduced it at the beginning of the divine service. And we call it, I don't know if he does here in the book. No, he doesn't. Uh, but it used to be called the preparatory rite. So how do we prepare to hear God's word, receive his gifts in the divine service? 
by confessing our sins, acknowledging we're a sinner, and hearing the word of forgiveness. And it also then mirrors, um, how are we doing on time? Yeah, we'll try to tidy this up here pretty quick. Um, it mirrors the Old Testament and the, the temple, and before that, the tabernacle. That before the priest would go in to make sacrifice, they had basins with water, and they would wash. And, they would, and there, there were other kinds of ritual cleansing. Even before he became a, like a priest, they would, they would use the blood of a sacrifice, of the bull, and put it upon his earlobe and upon his thumb and upon his big toe, which sounds kind of weird, I suppose. But, but it's that, you know, that statement, how blessed is, are the feet that bring the good news. Right? So, so even his feet were consecrated for service to God. And, and so also his ear, that is, he would hear God's word. And then his thumb, I guess. Uh, I don't know what he uses. Oh, his thumb is offering, I guess. I don't know. I'd have to look at some commentary on that. But you get the idea, right? So before you you receive, and you note that even my posture at the beginning of, again, this is a communion service, not what we did today. Um, My posture is such that I'm with you at the beginning, but only after we've all been forgiven, because that forgiveness that I proclaim to you is also forgiveness for me. Um, only then do we enter into what's called the chancel, the front, you know, that the altar area, if you want to call it that, or whatever, approach um, the holy place, if you want to call it that. I mean, you don't have to. Um, we don't necessarily. But, but we try to demonstrate actually continuity then with the, um, that liturgy is a continuity with the Old Testament because they did the same thing. Before they would go into the holy place, they would be consecrated, they'd be cleansed. And then only before they went into the holy, most holy place, they only did that to offer the sacrifice of, of atonement upon the, the mercy seat, right? So, so like today, I mean, I did enter during the last stanza of the opening hymn, even though that's not an intro it, which we haven't talked about yet. Um, but then I really didn't go into the altar except I had to to get the plates. But because there's nothing on the altar to give to the people, <laughs> there's not really any reason for me to enter into behind the rails, I could stay out where the service of the word happens. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Now, we do use the altar for more than just the Lord's Supper. We use it actually to offer prayers. We use it for that as well. But we have the option. You can just say prayers from the, from the lectern to the prayer gym. So I try to distinguish between the Matin service without communion and the, Lord's, and the divine service, which has, usually has the Lord's Supper, just to... Um, it's some nonverbal cues sometimes, whatever. It's you know what kind of service it's going to have. You can look at the altar and you can see too. It doesn't have all the linens and all the communion wear on it, but um, but also my behavior would indicate that this is a prayer service or this is a uh, office for that. So that's all preparing us then for really what is the service proper. It doesn't really start to commentary for with the intro. That's the actual beginning of the service, but that there's actually two services. So we have a preparatory rite. You'll see this on the bulletin, not this week, but last week. I don't think I have one. Maybe. No. Um, we'll say service of the word and then service of the sacrament. Yeah, and that's ancient. I mean, this is not just Lutherans. This goes back. It's in like Cyril of Alexandria, which is second century. Um, you know, and that tradition carries forward all the way into the Lutheran practice. From, from the first, second century all the way through, that we hear God's word. And, that, and that, that service is for all, like friends, neighbors, family, everybody is welcome to the service of the word. 
but the service of the sacraments for those who are prepared, as Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians, right? So then they actually, they would actually, um, they would have like a dismissal, not a benediction, but a dismissal at, before the offertory. So like when we collect the offering, they, 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 I think it's Cyril who says, the doors, the doors, you know? And so then people knew that was their time to leave unless they'd been prepared. And so um, it seems kind of like exclusionary and kind of mean. <laughs> you don't let us stay. And it's like, well, I mean, the sacrament is there for your, to be eaten and to be drunk. And if you're not prepared to receive that, then what's the benefit of you sitting there in the pew? Rome added all sorts of funky ideas, like you could be blessed by just being in the presence of the sacrament, not actually receiving and eating. That's why they have this whole adoration chapel thing and everything. That was one way to kind of answer that. But, um, um, you know, I don't get upset with like visitors when they leave before the sacrament. There's, they heard God's word. That's what they were there for. Um, if they've not been prepared to receive the sacrament, then that, that's actually fair. It was fun. Oh, you missed part of the service. Not really, actually just the part that you hadn't been prepared to receive yet. So, I mean, I think that's an important note to make. Uh, maybe also that not everybody then in the present, in your presence in the sanctuary has been prepared to receive the sacrament. And so I don't know if you've gotten this, but, you know, get the, sometimes you get the evil eye. People are, are just like funny looks or whatever. Like, what, what, why aren't you going up? And you're free to go up and get a blessing. Um, that's an accommodation again. There's nothing wrong with receiving a blessing. I can, I'll bless you on the way out. I'll bless you anytime you want a blessing. Um, but it's just always a kind of uh, so you're not too uncomfortable just sitting alone in the back um, but, but actually our practice is again if you're not going to commune or if you haven't confessed you don't commune um, so if you oh, this is my father he always came late to church he missed the confession at the beginning you know should he commune <laughs> did he believe he was a sinner I mean not a problem right but uh, yeah so that's some of that's historic some of that's but I think it's also helpful you know, is to say, hmm, you know, have I been prepared to receive God's word today? Have I been prepared to receive his sacrament? And I think everything in the service of the word actually is driving you towards the service of the sacrament, which I said a while ago, but it's important to remember, is that that's the aim, that's the trajectory of everything we're doing, in that service in particular, is to lead you there. Um, in kind of a, I like the word he uses, in a narrative way, the, uh, the divine service, this one, is telling, it's retelling the story of the, of the Christian, of, of Christ, of, of the church. And it does it in a very deliberate way that, you know, I'm not, a his, I'm not a traditional person in a sense that I just do stuff because it's tradition. Mike knows this. I'm a pretty big why person. Um, but through re- repetition and examination, um, I see the wisdom of having received the service as we have it. Uh, as a matter of fact, I have little, I have problems with, actually with some of the little revisions they did in service one, for example, versus service three, because I don't think it's as evocative, actually. I actually like some of the things in service one that I think they should have done in service, revised for service three. So anyway, um, I still have questions. I'm, I'm not entirely happy about everything, but I, but I think the overarching thing, though, is that it does communicate what the aim is, um, which is to tell your story, death and resurrection, um, Death to sin, life in Christ, um, confession, absolution, you know, so that we'd say that's judgment and forgiveness. It's, it's all there, law, gospel. And, uh, and, it, and you move that way, actually. Uh, and you did, actually, before we had pews, which Lutherans didn't always have pews, 
pews came from the Reformed because they sit down and they listen to lectures in their church. Oh, you just stand? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you stand. They'd have seats around the outside for the elderly the, or the sick, right? Or mother's nursing or something like that. So they'd have pews on the outside, but not the perimeter. So you actually moved through the church. The pastor would begin at the back and absolve, and you, know, you would move towards, towards the font if the font was at the entrance, but move to the pulpit, gather around the pulpit, and then move to the altar and gather around the altar. Yeah. Because the pulpit in a lot of those German churches wasn't at the front, it was towards the middle. And you would gather there, and then you would move to the front. And that, that, like the Syriac churches are that way, the Roman churches were that way. They moved, you moved through. But we've lost that movement because we just sit and stand and bow and scrape and all that. So. All right, let's uh, tidy it up there, and uh, we'll pick it up where we left off next time. I don't think we have a conflict next week. I don't think so. All right, uh, let's close with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you have um, guided your people to uh, worship in truth and in purity that is appointing um, ways of worship, liturgies, that is, and and lectionaries, you know, schedules of readings, that your truth would be given to us, that we would receive um, and then be be blessed to receive uh, giving thanks and praise back to you. We ask that you would always show us your salvation uh, through these means chosen in freedom, and that uh, we would be blessed by you through them. In Jesus' name, amen.